Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Thursday, May 25th. Welcome back to the Iowa College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me, and the deadline for underclassmen to withdraw from the NBA draft has passed. Bad news for North Carolina and Purdue. Good news for Gonzaga and Kansas and Kentucky. And I suppose we should start with John Calipari's Wildcats because it was their player, specifically Hamadou Diallo, who... Uh, was the last to publicly announce his intentions late last night. The possible none-and-done player withdrew from the NBA draft uh, despite the likelihood that he would have been a first-round pick. Matt Norlander, were you surprised by Diallo's decision, and do you think he made the right decision? Well, we both said that we thought Diallo would stay in the draft and that he would never play for Kentucky, so I guess I am a little surprised. Um, you know, I can't even necessarily say that him waiting up until literally 17 minutes before the deadline was, you know, ending to publicly uh, have word come out that he was staying uh, indicates that, you know, that that was an indicator because Caleb Swanigan waited till late until Wednesday and he's gone. So um, I think this is big for Kentucky. I mean, you now have Kentucky fifth. I'm not convinced Kentucky's a top-five team with Diallo back, but they are a much better team with him. I think he will be on the very short list of must-watch players. You know, not quite at the level of Lonzo Ball this past season. He's a very different player from Lonzo. He's not a point guard to begin with. But his electrifying play, his tremendous athleticism, he's a guy that wants the ball. Not completely selfish, but he'll definitely command the ball and uh, will be an unafraid player. Uh, Kentucky is going to be very interesting, a lot of fun, extremely young. And one of the biggest things with Diallo, and this is a little bit nuanced, and I just have a feeling we'll talk about this as we get more into next season, is Diallo's not afraid, but he also doesn't have a great jump shot yet. In fact, I think because he lacks a consistent jumper, basically outside of 15 feet, I'm not even necessarily talking a three-point shot. I mean, he's a good scorer and a solid shooter, but he's not ultra-consistent. I think his ability to develop a consistent jump shot is what could determine Kentucky standing in the SEC, making a Final Four, and him being a lottery pick next year. I do ultimately think he made the right decision because it's likely he would have gone anywhere from 25 to 35 this year. I think, I'm not saying it's a lock GP, I find it highly likely that next season Diallo will be a top 20 pick. This, to me, was the toughest decision of any underclassman. I like with, with Caleb Swanigan, and we can touch on him in a minute, um, I would have loved for him to come back to Purdue just because he was an awesome college basketball player and fun to watch, but uh, you can certainly understand why it was time for him to go. Like, how much more could he do at the collegiate level to enhance his draft stock other than just get into a weaker draft, like next year's draft? But um, his decision was sensible and I think rooted in, in – in all of the right things with Diallo. I could have argued it either way. On one hand, when you're a top shelf athlete that NBA teams are going to look at in the first round, my instincts are to say go because you don't want them. You, you don't want to risk showing them that you're not a basketball player. Like right now they're willing to take you and see if you can play basketball uh, over the next year. We're going to know if he can play basketball. And I could see a scenario where they go, oh, whoa, uh, the, the, he can jump and he can run, but that's all he can do is jump and run, can't make a shot, 
uh, struggled playing at the at the high major level, I could just I don't I'm not predicting that. I could just see it. At, at which point you've damaged yourself by exposing yourself. Uh, so my instincts are to say if you are an athlete, and really that's why people describe him. He's a, and I've seen him, you've seen him. He's a terrific athlete. Uh, you know, how good of a basketball player is he? Um, you can get away with just being a terrific athlete at the AAU level and the high school level. Um, it, you can do it at the Division One level too, but it becomes more difficult. And obviously at the NBA, uh, it's crucial to be an athlete, but just being an athlete won't get you very far. So my instincts are go. On the other hand, if you believe in yourself and you don't think you're going to get exposed, and in fact you think you're going to be a, um, a, a legitimate high major contributor for a consensus preseason top 10 team and you combine you know uh, the the idea that you're a basketball player with all the athleticism now you're talking about being a top 10 pick in a weaker draft next year and the amount of money um is pretty significant you know right now there are some people saying he left money on the table but he could be putting more money on the table and and here's what i mean I had Hamadou Diallo as the 24th pick projected in, in my mock draft. That doesn't mean he would have gone there, but just for the sake of this conversation, let's say he would have gone 24th. Um, that would have meant his guaranteed contract would have been worth $1.3 million in year one, $1.5 million in year two, and then the team option, which they almost always pick up, particularly on somebody his age, they would have picked it up, uh, would have been $1.8 million in year three for a total of $4.6 million in his first three years as a professional. If he comes back, turns himself into a top 10 pick, just the 10th pick in next year's draft, which I think is certainly possible, then he's guaranteed $2.9 million in year one, $3.4 million in year two, $3.6 million in year three for a total of $9.9 million over three years. That's a difference of $5.3 million over the first three years of his professional career or uh, on average $1.8 million a year. So I am confident somebody either connected to Kentucky or or just with his best interests in mind set him down and, and, and showed him this and said, yeah, you can be picked you know, in the 20s now, but you could be picked in the top 10 next year and you're literally making millions of dollars by doing that. Um, you know, uh, that might not be... Um, a, a dumb path to take. And so I could argue this one either way. I don't think there's a wrong decision for him, but um, it is undeniably good for Kentucky and I think by extension good for college basketball that he decided to put off the NBA draft at least for a year. You mentioned that you don't think uh, Kentucky is a, is a top five team. And I, I, you know, I certainly think that's a reasonable opinion. Um, as I always say with rankings, you know, you got to put five in the top five and they make as much sense. I think there as as anybody else, it is weird. Their makeup brought the makeup of their roster. They have eight top 25 national recruits, eight five-star players, um, but they are six of them are freshmen, I believe, and two of them are sophomores, and the two sophomores didn't even play last year. I mean, you talk about uh, being immensely talented. This roster is, uh, but as we've mentioned before on this podcast and other places, um, they're going to be as inexperienced as any team in America. Right. So this is just a team off the top of my head, and we can look at a few others, but I'm just curious as to your logic because I still might – put Kentucky ahead of Duke but if I played devil's advocate and said Duke will have a better point guard and will indisputably have the better player on either roster he was former you know uh, all-american he's a senior and has legit experience and Duke will probably have a better I think Wendell Carter uh, is better than any big man that Kentucky has 
Um, what makes you split and say Kentucky will be better than Duke? I think they just got more great, potentially great players. They got more of them. You know, they're they're equipped yep. to they're equipped to deal with injury problems um, or or any sort of thing that you might run into uh, throughout the course of a season. Whereas Duke is going to be uh, talent at the top of the roster, but certainly very very thin. I mean, like how many good players does Duke have? Duvall. Not a ton, and I think they're massively hurt by Frank Jackson not coming back personally. Yeah, I mean, like at the very least, you get Frank Jackson back, and he's an is another established um, double digit score. Like if they had Frank Jackson on this team, I could make an argument that Duke should be number one in the country because they then they have the roster balance that Arizona has. Um, that that typically the great teams have in college basketball: 2012 Kentucky, 2005 2015 Duke, 2015 Kentucky. Uh, the the best thing you can have in college basketball is one and done talent paired with experience, experienced contributors. That's what 2012 Kentucky had, 2015 Kentucky had, 2015 Duke had. It's what 2017-18 this Arizona team is going to have. Um, and 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 I guess Duke has it to some degree because of the presence of Grayson Allen and maybe Marquise Bolden, but they they. You know, they're so thin. Like, I mean, they, they've if you go Allen, Bolden, Duvall, Carter, Trent, I mean, there's a drop-off after that in terms of caliber of player, whereas, you know, Kentucky legit has eight five-star guys. I So, listen, I've got Kentucky five and Duke six. So, like, Yeah, it's splitting hairs. I was just kind of talking yeah, about Yeah, we're splitting hairs here. But, um, and I got no, like, if somebody else ranks Duke ahead of Kentucky, I'm not going to go, what is that idiot doing? I mean, it's perfectly reasonable. Um, but I went, I went with Kentucky just because I think – um, they've got more great players. That, that might be oversimplifying it, but that's that that would be my rationalization. All right. So another big decision this week. Uh, listen, I really like. Whereas like Alonzo Trier, Angel Delgado, Miles Bridges, these were massive decisions. And I have a story up by the time this podcast goes up. It's basically winners and losers from the draft process. But I believe ours is more extensive than any other you'll see out there. It's well over forty teams. So whereas those decisions were beneficial. There obviously are some big ones that are not beneficial and are detrimental. And Tony Bradley's got to be on the short list here. Carolina is is up there with teams hurt as much as anyone else because I believe with Bradley, um, you had the potential, the potential to flirt with that top five range. Without him, you've dropped Carolina out of the top ten altogether. Uh, I don't have a big issue with that. Now, I actually think Joel Berry is going to set up to have a huge statistical and usage year. I actually think he's going to have a really good shot at, uh, at at potentially being a player of the year just because he's losing a lot around him. But Caroline as a team, I think it's out of the ACC race, and I think it's not a national title contender anymore. I thought Bradley was going to have a huge year as a sophomore if he came back, but he bets on his potential here and opts to stay in a draft that's filled with a bunch of similar kind of big men there's a lot of guys 610 to 71 who are in that 18 to 34 range right now it'll be interesting to see where he goes and how he adapts at the nba level i thought he would have been benefited by staying another year putting up big numbers and going in a weaker draft next year but he opts to do the opposite i'm with you on tony bradley uh, he his per minute stuff was very very good last year um he was like gonna be the next in a line of of carolina players who 
you know, get into the program, are pretty good as first-year players, and then take off as either sophomores or juniors. Like, he projected that way, and losing him is a massive blow. I, I You know, it's obviously not as big as Purdue losing Caleb Swanigan, but it does, I, I agree with you, probably take them out of the national championship uh, conversation um, because now they lose four of their top five scorers from that championship team, and it's not like they have the recruiting class that Duke has or Kentucky has or Arizona has. Or hell, even that Alabama has. You know, they're 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 adding zero five star players, which is something we've talked about before. How they haven't been recruiting five stars uh, effectively in, in recent years for a variety of reasons. Um, and so they, you know, they they bring in some nice pieces, but not great pieces. And you usually take a dip when when your roster looks like Carolina's roster. You usually dip a little bit. It doesn't mean they're going to become irrelevant. I've still got them top fifteen, although I'm not certain they should be top fifteen. Like, I, I think you could reasonably argue they should be lower than where I have them. I think I have them 12th now. Um, but when you lose four of your top five scores and you do not replace with, you know, some five-star guys, it becomes difficult to operate at the highest level of the sport. Also, although it should be noted that they could still add a graduate transfer to maybe even Cam Johnson. And we might talk about that in a bit, the kid from uh, Pitt. He would help. But, yeah, I'm with you. Like, uh, the draft deadline yesterday – uh, that was a bad day for North Carolina. It was. Purdue is an interesting case. Um, they lose Swanigan, which he makes the right decision. Uh, if It would be stupid if he doesn't go in the first round. He was just – I understand the limitations in like, what his role might be, but I, he's proven that he can step out and shoot. I know he's not the most athletic guy. He's totally redefined his body. His worth ethic is undeniable. Caleb Swanigan, I would put, take him in the top 20. Now, I don't think he's going to go in the top 20, um, but he is just a case of a guy that was so consistently great at the college level, uh, had no choice but to go, and an NBA team should absolutely cash in on him and hopefully get you know six to eight immediate really productive years out of him. But Purdue overall, just real quick, I mean, they get Isaac Haas back. That was relatively expected to get Vince Edwards back. I kind of picture Purdue as a winner here because they lose GP. I know they lose out with Swanigan, but that was the expected departure. So it's all about perspective here. Other than that, though, they bring back six of their seven most productive players. Granted, the one they lose is by far their most productive player. But Purdue's in an interesting spot. They lose who a guy that would have been the near consensus preseason player of the year. Bring everyone back. I think that they will still compete for a top three spot in the Big Ten. So, like a small piece like this, like. Vince Edwards coming back. I understand a lot of people don't know who he is. He's a, like he's a, not a national factor, even close. But him coming back with Isaac Koss, Carson Edwards, I think Dakota Mathias is going to be awesome. Purdue got enough returning. You know, if Edwards doesn't come back, I think that could have been a decision that just had a compounding effect. And now because Purdue brings a lot back, I think that they'll still be in the mix within the Big Ten. There's another team out there that uh, who was similar Man, I had him in my mind while you were talking. There was another team that's losing a lot. No, not, not losing a lot, but losing one piece, but getting enough back where they should still have enough. It's not Louisville, although them getting Dang Adele back is also pretty huge. It, it is interesting because now we're ha- we have GP. About 95% of the sport is set up for next year. The only things we're waiting on are like uh, one five-star, a couple four-stars, and then the graduate transfers to kind of land with their, where they're going to land. But the decisions have been made, and now we can really start to shape up at least our ideas of what you know, what we should expect, who we should get, who we shouldn't. Um, it should be a, a pretty interesting. I think it'll be a pretty interesting season because we're not going to have a strong freshman class, 
But we're going to have a lot of teams that are going to have enough returning players of impact where strong teams led by sophomores and juniors, like even Carolina, you know, they lose Justin Jackson, but Barry coming back, Pinson coming back, Villanova's bringing enough back there. I think uh, USC is bringing a lot of talent back as well. So it's going to be a different kind of season next year. It's not going to be as freshman dominated, but I still think the teams in the top 10 will be close to competing with the talent levels overall that we saw this past season. Yeah, when it comes to discussing winners and losers at the draft deadline, I, I sort of look at it from this pers- 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 uh, perspective of, um, okay, like the guys you were automatically losing, like everybody assumed they were gone, like whatever, just put them over here. It's the borderline guys, the ones that could stay or could go. Right. Those are where you become a winner or a loser uh, at the draft deadline. And so I think Purdue, I'm with you, is probably a winner because they only lost Caleb Swanigan. They could have theoretically lost three dudes. They they only lose one, and and it's the one that everybody assumed was going anyway. So, um, yeah, that, that yesterday was a good day for Matt Painter. Arizona, I, I think, is, is similar to this. You know, they get back Alonzo Trier. Over the weekend, since the last time we spoke, they get back Raleigh Hawkins. And what's interesting about them, I started – doing the research on this, I guess it was Monday morning, and I, I'm not saying definitively it's never happened. I'm just saying I can find no evidence that it's ever happened. And what I'm talking about is this. Uh, that's a team that won 32 games last year. And I know that we, we play more games now than we used to, and you know maybe some of this has got to do with the lack of depth in the Pac-12 last year. But either way, um, the facts are the facts. These are facts. Uh, they won 32 games last year. They're bringing back with Raleigh's announcement that he's coming back to Arizona bringing back three of their top four scores from that team and enrolling a top three recruiting class. And I went all the way back in 247 Sports uh, database through the team recruiting rankings as far back as they go, which is 2003. And there's, this has never happened before. There's never been a 32-win team or, or a team that has won at least 32 games, return three of its top four scores, and then add to it a top three recruiting class. Somebody pointed out on Twitter that North Carolina might have had an example of this. I think it was 1993, they won the national title. Uh, then they did bring back three of their top four scores. Then they added some high-level prospects. But team recruiting rankings don't exist from the mid-'90s, so there's no way to prove it. But that might qualify. But either way, uh, the point is is Arizona, is, is that roster is pretty rare um, in, in terms of, of the way it's made up. And it is exactly the type of roster that um, in recent years in the one-and-done era has flourished. And that's what? Having possible one-and-done guys, DeAndre Ayton being the the most obvious. You know, he's a projected top-five pick in the 2018 NBA draft. But then surrounding him with experienced contributors like Raleigh Hawkins, like Alonzo Trier. Um, That's why I think now Arizona should be the preseason number one. Yeah, I'm on board with that. I couldn't remember if we had – I think we had not podcasted since we made that decision because that was earlier this week. They also are bringing in – Emmanuel Acott, who's a five-star forward, who was going to be in the class of 2018. He's in the class of 2017. Again, like I don't know if he's going to be a top-five producer, but he is a five-star prospect who will be in the rotation. And to be honest, even if he contributes at 
Kobe Simmons type levels, which, you know, Kobe's gone to the draft here for Arizona, but he was kind of a bit player here and there. It's still enough to vault them to number one. Um, you know, coincidentally, the other team was, I was thinking about when I couldn't remember when we were talking Swanigan, losing Swanigan with Purdue, was Kansas, which loses an undeniable big-time player in Josh Jackson, but they get Svee Mikhailik back, they get Devontae Graham back. There's enough returning there that Kansas, in my opinion, is still a winner because they get those guys back. Right. Arizona, I think, has to be the number one team given the depth. Trier and Aiton could both be All-Americans. Raleigh Alkins, I expect to be just an awesome sophomore i i love his potential overall and for arizona you know it's interesting what they've turned into now uh, granted i'm very aware of the fact that a lot of this is obviously just projections and we're forecasting and we're doing our best to try and line up the rankings but when we talked about arizona in december you know it was a lot of will alonzo true even play this year will this team even be you know a five or six seed caliber Instead, they get you know a great year out of Lowry Markinen. They play their way to a two seed. It ends in disappointment against Xavier in the Sweet 16, obviously. But on the whole, it was a solid year. And now they are set up um, for as anticipated of a season in a really long time. I'm thinking back to like the Luke Walton, Jason Gardner, you know that era, like a long time ago. I feel like it's been that long since Arizona like entered a season with this much expectation i don't have it up in front of me but oh, no, they, they, they enter almost every season with expectations i mean they've they but, got... but like this gp what i'm getting at is when was like let's say they're the preseason number one team in the ap poll i wonder when the last time that happened for arizona their fan base without a doubt that is a that is a top borderline top five program in america so they have big time expectations every year but i'm just talking about we're getting closer to people thinking arizona should be the number one team across the board when was the last time they entered a season with that much of a near consensus. I'm That's not, all. Yeah, I'm not sure when they were number one last. I, I'll go through some of it but right now. But, I mean, they're, they've been in the top five and top ten, like, all the time, right? Yep. Yeah, like last year, what were they preseason? They were number 12. Year before that, they were well, – I'm going back to 2015 now. They were number two preseason poll. So they were preseason 2014-15, uh, number two in the country with five first-place votes. So expectations are attached to them basically every year, uh, certainly under Loot, but but now under Sean, uh, they really haven't uh, fallen off at all. Um, but now the, the, the pressure is starting to get attached to it too. Not that there isn't inherent pressure to be in the Arizona basketball coach, but you start to get labeled a little bit like, okay, here we are again. You got great players. You're ranked in the preseason top five. Can you get to a Final Four, finally? And uh, I was on radio in Arizona uh, yesterday or the day before, and they were asking me, you know, do, do you think this is the year, you know, Sean breaks through? And my answer is basically, I always think it's the year Sean breaks through. And eventually he will. Because if you continue to put uh, talented rosters together, you will just break through some year. It's just going to happen. There is no scenario under which Sean Miller coaches the next 10 years at Arizona and doesn't go to a Final Four. And maybe he doesn't even win a national championship because he's obviously uh, going to be able to recruit at the highest level of the sport. And if you can do that, you give yourself opportunities. And eventually, either you just genuinely have the best team, so you win it, or it just bre- but you know it just breaks your way. You know somebody gets upset in your bracket, so you have an easier path to a Final Four. Uh, like you know, don't ever forget Bill Self's first Final Four because he had this label for a while. 
you know, he, God, is Bill Self ever going to get to the Final Four? Can he get to the Final Four? Why does he always lose in the Elite Eight or earlier? You remember who they beat to go to the Final Four for the first time? Who they beat in the Elite Eight? Um, was Hold on, don't tell me, don't tell me. Uh, off the top of my head, 2008. Uh, that was Davidson. Right. I mean, they got to, with all due respect to Steph and Davidson, they got to play Davidson in the Elite Eight. And so sometimes it just opens up for you. And um, I thought it would have already happened. Um, I, I assume it will happen this season, if only because, like, I have them preseason number one. But, you know, the Arizona fans, the ones who question, like, God, okay, we, here we are again, but can we really break through? They sound a lot like Kansas fans did before 2008. Um, it, it just You've got a coach who keeps assembling great rosters. Uh, eventually, that it just happens for you. I mean, you, I, I don't, you don't even have to be a, an A level coach, which I think Sean is. But you don't even have to be an A level coach. Like you just keep getting the best players. You know, you're gonna. It, it's hard not to get a get to a Final Four uh, at some point. And so, the other interesting thing about uh, these preseason rankings is that you look at the top, and it's just big brand, big brand, big brand. And I don't think that's because of big brand bias. I really do think these are the best teams in the country. You know, at one, we have Arizona. At two, we have Kansas. At three, we have Michigan State. At four, we have Wichita State, which may be a little high, but, I mean, my God, they bring back everybody from a team that was top ten at Ken Palm. Um, that, I'm feeling that, yeah. Yeah, I can get that's that. The, they are like, it's, it's funny, like, it's, it is a big brand in college. And it is a big brand. Wichita State's a brand now. At five, Kentucky. At six, Duke. At seven, Louisville. At eight, Villanova. I mean, the top eight schools, I think you can all reasonably call big brands in college basketball. And then you got USC and, and Florida and Miami. Then it drops off a little bit in terms of brand. But the top eight teams, I mean, it's big, big brands, and that's good for the sport. I would agree. Um, and I guess we can just wrap it up with this before we move on to the other topics. Um, I know we said this earlier this offseason. I know we said it last year. I just want to kind of reinforce it. The process is working. This is the calendar should not be changed. I have no issue with the NCAA having a different technical deadline than the NBA's, which is for foreign prospects. That's later in June. You get 10 days till after the combine. You make your choice. It's the perfect marriage between getting enough time to get enough feedback, get workouts in with multiple teams, go to the combine, get plenty of information. Then before May's out, before Memorial Day hits, you got to make your decision. And from there, if there are any lingering transfers or recruits that are still waiting to decide they still got time to do that get enrolled get into summer school people for the most part there are always going to be decisions where like hmm, i can't believe he came back he should have gone like miles bridges or hmm i can't believe he went he probably should have returned like tony bradley um but for the most part i do feel as though this is working this is a good thing and the ncaa should do nothing to change this this is the perfect calendar for players to decide if they're going to stay or go and the young people and the and the folks surrounding them i think deserve some credit as well because i think the fear among college coaches was that if you let all these players declare and you let them all go through the process they're gonna uh, you know they're gonna have people pulling them out of college and they're gonna make bad decisions and for the most part i think like the overwhelming majority of the underclassmen who declare the ones that matter the ones who we actually like know their names I think they made pretty reasonable decisions. Like I know you don't think Tony Bradley should have gone, and and I certainly not unreasonable. But it's not unreasonable. Yeah, like he's you know he, he listen. He'll be making more money than than most people next year. You know he'll get a guaranteed NBA contract whether he's picked in the top thirty or not. And so um, I, I think for the most part, the players who are relevant, who were seriously considering 
in, you know, uh, staying in the NBA draft, if they were told you should go back to school, this, this ain't the place for you right now, for the most part, they went back to school. Like the system seems to be working the way it was intended to work. And um, I do think, I mean this seriously, like that's a credit to, to the, the student athletes and, and also the people around them. Like they're, they're what, what you hoped when we went to this system was that these guys would um, go through the process, get real honest feedback, and then they would listen to the feedback. And, you know, all throughout the sport, it, it seems like that is mostly the case, which is encouraging, right? Yeah, no, it's very encouraging. And, uh, yeah, this, the process is working as was expected. And I would, I would think that this should remain the constant going forward. I think this is the process that will be in place for, uh, for decades to come. Uh, Cam Johnson has been in the news over the past week because he is a graduate transfer at Pitt who um, has restrictions placed on him by uh, the Pitt administration. He is at least considering some fellow ACC schools, among them North Carolina, but Pitt to date has uh, stated that it will not allow him to, to transfer within the league. They won't grant that release. Um, this has happened throughout college basketball and college football before. Um, I've written about it before, uh, specifically as it related to Austin Nichols uh, a couple years ago. And I, I don't know why it keeps happening. Uh, it's just, it, forget that it's fundamentally wrong. Like even if you disagree with that, which I don't know how you could, but even if you just disagree, um, it's a public relations nightmare for your university, for your staff, for your administration. Why? Like what does it matter to you? Do you really think... Like the I, I never understood. Well, we don't want him to go in our league. Why? Like, is he gonna like? Is that really the difference between what you're gonna be and what they're gonna be? Like, North Carolina's gonna be better than you anyway. Like, what? Like, what? Why do you care where 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 Cam Johnson goes? And yet here it is. Kevin Stallings taking a beating. The Pitt AD taking a beating. Uh, you wrote about it. Um, I think you and I are basically on the same page. If somebody wants to transfer, particularly somebody who has been a model student, um, a, has graduated. And and never done anything but 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 good things for your program. If his desire is then to go somewhere else, you you wish him luck. You pat him on the back and you say wherever you want to go, um, that's where you're going to go. You you don't put restrictions on anybody. Like this is one of the things uh, because it is pretty common, or at least it was common several years ago for universities to put restrictions on student athletes. It's less common now because the smart ones have realized it ain't worth the trouble. But John Calipari, once again, was a little ahead of the curve on this. Like, you remember when Kyle Wilcher uh, wanted to transfer? Yep. You know what John said? There are no restrictions. Wherever he wants to go, he can go. And not every coach would come out and say that at the time. But John just understood it's not worth it. You look like the good guy when you encourage somebody to go wherever they want to go. You look like the bad guy when you try to prevent them from doing it. Why, why, why paint myself that way? And more coaches have jumped on board with that. But obviously, Kevin Stallings and that Pitt administration, uh, they haven't. Yeah, Johnson's an interesting case. He is uncommon uh, in that he is a grad transfer with two years of eligibility. Normally, what happens is players don't lose a year uh, of eligibility because they don't get injured and they don't have to burn a year. Cam Johnson had an injury to, a, I believe, his shoulder earlier in his career. Um, but he was still – that didn't affect his classroom performance, and he was uh, a really good student. He has fulfilled his expectations at Pittsburgh. He graduates in three years, and it shouldn't even matter that he's a really good student, but it kind of it, it brings more emphasis and a certain 
uh, human quality of the story that will that endears people to his plight here. Um, he's done. He graduated from Pittsburgh. There should be no restrictions, period. Now, I'm for no restrictions ever with a transfer. You cannot restrict a player from going where he wants to go. I'm for I'm for no restrictions and no um, and, and immediate eligibility everywhere. I, yes. I, I think there it should be like if you wanna if you play at North Carolina this year and you decide you want to play at Pitt next year or vice versa, like go. I d I don't think there should be I coaches, I am I, Oh, coaches hate it. I like I can't yeah, this is one thing where like uh, the coaches and the general public, and if you wanted to say coaches and media, uh, the differing of opinion here could not be wider. I, I mean, I've heard from coaches after writing this thing, and because they deal with it on a on a micro level, on a day to day level, you, you know, the time we invest in putting these kids and developing these relationships, and I think that you know he's been tampered with and yada 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 and all this stuff. I I I personally don't care. I don't care either. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't care either. You can, you can't. It's especially the kid's graduated. You cannot tell him where he can go and can't go. So here's the deal with Pitt. Initially, they said he couldn't transfer within the league and on the schedule. Then he appealed. Then they bent and said, "Okay, you can go in the league. You gotta sit." And so now, like, there's clearly heavy interest between Cam Johnson and the North Carolina team that really needs Cam Johnson, who is a solid player, not a future NBA player, but simply a really good, efficient, offensive college basketball player who can start at a major high D1 level, okay? So now Cam Johnston, who, by the way, has opportunities. You know, I don't know if the Diallo thing now means he doesn't really can't go to Kentucky and because Raleigh Alkins and ACOT reclassifying, I don't know if that takes Arizona off the board in terms of their scholarship situations. But if indeed that's the, that's the fact, then Carolina is by far the best option for him. And it's not an ACC rule. It's not an NCAA rule. Cam Johnson should be able to go where he wants to go, and particularly because he has graduated. He has done with his undergraduate career at Pittsburgh. There should be no restrict. This is not that hard to understand, and I think a lot of people do agree with this. I, I don't know if the NCAA, which is made up of all these member institutions, so you're going to have to get the institutions to vote against you know their own interests in this, so I don't know if it will ever happen, but there should be a rule in the bylaws that basically prevent schools from doing this. You should, and and by the way, in the, in the story I wrote, Mark Emmert, president of the NCAA, who has, you know, an army of critics for a litany of reasons, in 2012, he was on the record saying as though student athletes should have more liberties when it comes to transferring and less restrictions, you know, less chains around their ankles. Nothing has changed here. I don't know if one or two high-profile cases in college football and college basketball per year's event is is creating the progress. I don't know what the event's going to be that gets this to change, but it does need to change. I understand that student athletes get plenty of perks by pure nature of being a Division One basketball player, but that doesn't mean that they should be restricted from a basic human right here. If you want to transfer to a different college, you should be able to without restrictions and without your former school. <laughs> particularly that you have graduated from telling you, okay, but you can't play next year. I love that you turned it into a human rights issue. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, can you imagine, like, think about this for a second. If you want to understand how um, bad these restrictions are and what they could have done to the history of college basketball, can you imagine if Cincinnati once upon a time would have put restrictions? I don't even go there. 
on Devin Downey and said, you cannot go back to your home state of, of South Carolina. Even though you're the pride of Chester, South Carolina, you can't go back and play for the University of South Carolina. You cannot be a Gamecock. You know what happens then? We never get January 26, 2010. When Devin Downey got 30 points, five rebounds, three assists, and a 68-62 win over Kentucky. That was John Calipari's first loss as head coach of the Kentucky Wildcats. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry Teagle. Boo all transfer restrictions. That was very eloquent. Thank you. <laughs> Let's wrap up with your uh, piece you wrote earlier this week on Jake Wiley, who uh, I'm confident a lot of college basketball fans uh, aren't familiar with because he played at Eastern Washington, but he has developed into a, a legitimate NBA prospect. Um, pro- probably unlikely that he'll be picked, but like he's, he, you know, I think Draft Express has him as a top 70 prospect, so that doesn't mean that it would be crazy if somebody took him in the second round. His story is. Um, nothing short of um, amazing, also sad, but perhaps there's a good ending to it. I'll let you tell it since you wrote it. Yeah, I'll be relatively quick with this. The story is up because um, normally I'm not going to write about a, a you know a long feature about a, a prospect that falls in the 70 to 80 range uh, because usually that prospect isn't well known. But uh, Wiley's story is so ridiculous um, that it kind of transcends his standing within uh, the, the draft pool this year. And I do think... He could potentially be picked because he is a top 10 athlete in this draft. So um, he grows up in California with a black mom, a white dad. They're never married. He's got a very complicated relationship with his father, who was an alcoholic, something of a deadbeat, um, battled depression. But amid all this, uh, Jake was bad in school, wanted to get out. His father had family in Washington State. His father wanted to leave. So Jake said, I'm leaving. And obviously his mother, and he lived with his mother and his baby sister, uh, they wanted nothing to do with that. They didn't want him to leave. He ultimately goes. has to. His father's not allowed to call the house. Literally has to arrange times during the day when he would sneak out, walk to a payphone. And this is not long ago. This is seven, eight years ago. He just didn't have a cell phone. So his dad would call a payphone at a prearranged time, and they would have discussions. And that's how they actually initially planned for him to to leave California. Eventually his mother's like, well, if you're going to go, you know, I'm going to be the one that takes you to the airport and all that stuff. So, uh, moves to Washington. He's got his grandparents up there, but his dad's got no money. The grandparents are paying for them to live in basically an attic with a shower that barely works. Um, it's not a great situation. His dad gets back into heavy drinking, tries to kill himself, does not kill himself. Neighbors catch him before he can do it via carbon monoxide poisoning with a car in a garage and all that. Um, he writes a suicide note to his son. Uh, the suicide note is the only item that Jake still has, like physical material item, to remember his father by. He doesn't have a photo, like he doesn't have like a physical photo, doesn't have any of his shirts or like anything. It's just a suicide note that he wrote to him. And so their relationship gets a little better. Eventually, his dad dies on Super Bowl Sunday, the year the Packers beat the Steelers in the Super Bowl. Um, I get a little into that into the story. Uh, eventually, he goes to Montana. He's not. He's he goes to school basically an hour north of Gonzaga. Plays almost no AAU. Gets no interest from like even Gonzaga. Montana is the only D1 school that offers him. But he's an insanely good athlete. So he winds up hating basketball. He goes through major psychological issues of just even practicing. Saying he would sit in his dorm room for two hours, having to just prepare himself to go through basketball practice. Okay, he hates it. Uh, starts running the track in his free time, joins the track team, and 
eventually, like, he barely plays that freshman year at Montana. That team got killed by Syracuse in the tournament. He got into the game, scored five points, and tied for the team's leading score because they lost 81-34. Trains in the offseason, goes to his first practice of his sophomore year, hates it, quits on the spot. But he quits. He calls up Wayne Tinkle, who's now the coach at Oregon State, says, Coach, i got to talk to you. And Wayne's like, you know, okay, if you have to talk to me, here's an address, come meet me. Meets him at a, a senior care center. What Jake doesn't realize is Wayne's mother, the day before, had a stroke out of nowhere. She'll die the next day. He was unaware of this, but he tells Wayne then and there, hey, I, 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 just, I can't do this. Basketball's not for me. Joins the football team, you know, hurts his knee, can't run track, leaves Montana, goes to NAIA, does well there, eventually goes to Eastern Washington. While all this happens, loses his grandfather, uh, has a baby with his high school sweetheart who lived down the street from him in Washington, but they did not know each other at the time. And she later discovers like how bad his living situation was and says, if I had known you were living in that house all of, you know, 400, 500 yards from me, I would have had you live with my family. It's like it's that kind of bad of a situation. Stars at Eastern Washington after being a non-factor at Montana becomes the big sky player of the year and tells me he did not even think about the NBA, period, until his senior season was over at Eastern Washington, got an invite to Portsmouth, was awesome at Portsmouth. Portsmouth is an annual event in April where college seniors go to play. To, it's, they're basically, it's a long-standing thing that dates back to the 50s. It's really a great event. In fact, I'd love to go kind of cover it and write the history of it because it's the one event that's kind of old school in nature. If you're a college senior and you just, you're trying desperately to get a sniff at being picked, or being a summer league guy, you go to Portsmouth and hope you play well. Guys are dying to just get a look there. Jake Wiley plays as well as almost anyone at the event, and now he's getting workouts with you know, 15, 16 teams. It's, and he's so mature now. I mean, his grades used to be terrible. He admits he was a punk. Um, didn't really understand why he hated basketball. In fact, he only got back into it, which I found a, very, a reason. Like He watched the tournament, was just so psyched up at the tournament the year after he quit. That's what made him want to get back into it. I found that a very identifiable human quality. So it's, uh, it's a crazy story. There's plenty else in the future. It's a, it's a long one, but I think it's worth it. And uh, he just got married. He's got a, he's got a baby girl. Um, and there's plenty of other like depressing details, but uplifting details there as well. And we'll see, man. It is impossible not to root for this guy. It would be incredible. If, you know, with the 58th pick in the 2017 draft, if like his name got called, he's not necessarily expecting that. But he's also totally at ease. Like he he thinks that he could be a successful 10 year player in, you know, Australia or anywhere in Europe. And that could be the road that he travels. And if it is more power to him, because 12 months ago, he did not think basketball was in his future. He thought that he would have to get some sort of job locally. And instead, he's almost certainly going to be making money playing hoops for at least the next decade. Do we know? We don't know how his father died, do we? No. So his father dies. Um, he did not know if it was suicide or not. Uh, he simply was asleep on the floor. And I mean, Jake was using a computer. I kind of detail why he was on the computer and what he was doing. He'd had a game the night before. And whereas his dad used to show up to games, be belligerent, sometimes, you know, half wasted yelling at refs or him or the coaches. That wasn't the case the, the day before he died. He went to the game. He was fine. He was great. Their relationship was better. He asked his grandfather, if it was suicide and his grandfather simply told him, Jake, you need to let this be. And that grandfather has since died, died a few weeks before he had the birth of Jake's daughter. It's just, it's wild. So no, the, uh, the reasons for the death as far as Jake is concerned are not known. Now there has to be a reason given because you have, you know, 
the coroner's got to look and determine, but he has never sought to find out the actual reason that he died. I think, and he's totally at ease with it, um, whether it was an accident or not. Um, it's just something that he's completely moved on from. But at I, the I same wa- time, this was the first time he ever really talked about that. Story. I wonder this. As a reporter, do you struggle with, okay, I can get a copy of the... I thought, I thought about it and I decided not to. I, I did think about trying to get that information because but. because it's tough because like on one hand you can you can very easily get the answer to how this man died on the other hand if the subject has gone out of his way to never know like right. do you want to be the person that puts that right in front of him i think i remember this being a bit of a controversy with john wall um that that people were telling reporters were telling john wall things about his father that he never knew because they went back and looked it all up, and it was like, should you do that? And I, I think I, I'll side on, like, you're a reporter, go report. But, like, I understand the sensitivity to it. Like, I, I would have personally had a hard time, like, saying— it Basically, the reason, yeah, the reason why I didn't do it was um, him knowing or not is not— it's not the fourth, sixth, or twelfth most important reason for the story. Right. So that's ultimately why. And he was also, for the first time, I mean, he— he was basically no one's written this kid's story before uh, remotely, you know, this in depth. And so he was talking about things for the first time publicly. I mean, he was telling me things that he said only his wife had known about. Right. So um, so I wanted to be respectful of that. And sure. uh, yeah, he was a tremendous, tremendous interview. And it, it definitely is a it's a very it's a one of a kind kind of case here. And and the thing is, no one knew about his story because he didn't play at Montana, was at NAIA, and then Eastern Washington didn't make the tournament. You almost feel like if they had made the tournament, someone would have would have gotten this, but they didn't even get there. Um, and so now, only with the with the you know a fleeting chance of hopefully making the NBA, does this uh, even get to come out? I uh, I hope it wasn't suicide because like listen, there's no good way for a father to take his own life, but like the idea that you might do it in the same room as your son. Ugh. Right. I mean that's a. I know. Ugh. So anyway, it's a it's a hell of a story. If you haven't read it yet, you can find it at cbssports.com or on Matt Norlander's Twitter feed or on my Twitter feed. Remember, you can subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast via iTunes. So please do that. Thank you all for listening. Um, I don't know that we're going to have an episode next week. Let's it's you know what? Let's just let's take it off. Unless barring like major major. Things. The reason I'm I've got to go to a wedding, and the wedding's in Mexico. Yeah. And so I, okay, that's yeah, so, and I'm not going to be doing a podcast from Mexico, I don't think, but maybe, I don't know. We'll figure it out. But if we're not around maybe next week, maybe disastrous. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably tell our bosses that I'm going to Mexico next week. I don't think I've been, I had them. no idea you were going to Mexico <laughs> until this very moment. So. I, I should probably tell some more people. Uh, so anyway, okay. I'm going to send some emails to my bosses and then, uh, I'll chat with you whenever. Take care. <laughs>